Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with one of the most creative people in the golf industry, Nathan Crace. This is Nathan's second Tartan Talks appearance. He was on episode number five. We thought it would be great to have Nathan on again because a lot has changed in the last three years. Nathan's going to discuss what it was like being a golf course architect during the 2010s and what he thinks might happen in the 2020s. Before we get going with Nathan, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Nathan took some time to join us. Well, Nathan, it's great to have you on the podcast again. If my memory is correct, you were guest number five. Now we're on episode 42. We've come a long way in the last three years. So thanks for joining us. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is that I noticed on your Twitter account, which is at Lipouts, that Better Billy Bunker, who sponsors this podcast, sent you some cookies. They also sent us some cookies. And I'm just curious, how long did those last in your office? Um, they didn't stay at the office long. They were immediately transported to the house where they were devoured by the uh, the kids and, and guests at the home. Those are great cookies. If, if uh, you know, as you know, they're made with real butter and it's hard to find cookies made like that these days. So, yeah, those, those, those were great. They didn't last long. It was a nice thing that they sent all of us, and it, it was great timing with the holidays. But on a, on a serious note, the 2010s are over. How would you characterize this decade for a golf course architect? A lot happened in the last 10 years, and there were a lot of wild um, economic swings during that period. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I guess the easiest way to describe it is it's kind of like a roller coaster, you know, and, and, and I know that's a little um, maybe too simplistic, but it, it so quick too I mean it's just when you said decade my first thought was when did this decade start oh 2010 and then just it's hard to believe the last 10 years have flown by that quick um, you know we've everybody started out kind of digging out of the recession and, and more golf courses were closed and opening and things were just really slow in the industry um, for for our firm very fortunate in that a few years prior to that point, uh, right before the recession, we were thinking about hiring uh, and bringing on somebody full-time to help with design, mainly with AutoCAD and, and things of that nature, and kind of give me an assist when things got busy, because we were, 2007, 2008, we were pretty busy, we had a lot of projects going on, and for whatever reason, I just I didn't pull the trigger. I've never really had anybody other than our support staff. I've never actually had anybody help me with design since a week since I started this firm. And I'm glad I didn't because looking back, I probably would have had to let that person go shortly after bringing him on board because everything, the bottom just fell out. I mean, there were all the projects that were on the drawing board for the next year or two were put on hold indefinitely or just canceled altogether. And so the beginning of the decade was, was pretty slow, and I think anybody in the industry will, will vouch for that. And then it just progressively got better and better and better. And in the last three years, um, you know, since, frankly,
frankly, since the election and, and the economy started to, to turn. We've had same, some of those same projects that were put on the back burner or, or on hold indefinitely. Those people have started calling again and, hey, we want to take a look at this again or new projects just out of the blue. And we get a, we've been getting a lot of calls about those and, and potentially a couple of projects coming up where I'll be collaborating with, with other ASGCA members and then those projects will be fun. I'll be, be glad to announce those when, when we're ready to go with those. Nathan, was there any point where you were seriously questioning your career path and thinking, why am I still in this? No. And I think part of that is because, and I hate the word boutique. People like to throw that around. I guess we are a boutique firm because we don't try to tackle, you know, five or six projects a year. We don't have a big staff of people sitting around drawing tables and, you know, doing things all around the world. That said, having that smaller footprint, you know, enables a little more flexibility. Plus, we also have a sister club management company, and that club management company kind of helps, you know, keep an even keel through the, the ups and downs. And so when the design firm, we may not have as many projects going on, we may have you know, one or two small projects, you know, we've got that management company to kind of help buoy things through the, the rougher waters and, if that's not enough nautical reference, I can throw a few more in there. How would you characterize the design styles that we saw in the 2010s? Did you notice any shifts and any trends in what people wanted in a golf course in the last 10 years? Minimalism has been a catchphrase for a while now, for a couple of decades, really. But it really caught on, you know, in this uh, age of austerity. You know, people were trying to reduce inputs and and find less expensive ways to maintain without sacrificing quality and that type of thing, which was ironic because when I first got into the business back in the mid-90s, I went to work for a guy who used to be a golf course superintendent and always wanted to design golf courses, and we worked together for eight years and, and did a lot of great work. But having worked with him, you know, we had a lot of projects where our client came to us and said, I've got one and a half million dollars and I want to build an 18 hole golf course. You know, we found ways to make it happen and they weren't little goat ranches. I mean, they were nice, nice golf courses built in the mid to late nineties. So when I would hear people say, well, we're going to renovate this golf course, but we've only got five or six million dollars to use. You know, we would kind of laugh about it because Hattiesburg Country Club, for example, which is a former PGA Tour site, one of the best courses in the state of Mississippi. We renovated it in 1999 for $1.3 million. And that was a total renovation. And so we've kind of been used to squeezing quarters out of dimes, for lack of a better term. And again, not cutting corners and not doing things cheap, but not wasting money in areas where it doesn't need to be wasted. You know, really trying to maximize every dollar that the client provides us. And so now I see that. That's kind of coming around now. That's a, uh, become a buzz term. Um, there's a couple of guys out there that are actually marketing themselves with that, and that's great. But it's kind of funny to me because looking back, that's something that we've always done, you know, and, and now that we've gotten a little traction, a little a few bigger projects, um, this whole, you know, coming back around and trying to reduce cost thing is, is uh, cycling back in. It's like anything else. I had a discussion with, 
Ron Witten, and it's kind of like a pendulum where whether it's hairstyles or music or clothing, you know, everything is like a big pendulum. And you go from the hair bands of the 80s to the grunge bands of the 90s, and that pendulum always wants to come back somewhere around the middle, a little left, a little right, whether it's politics, clothing, what have you. I think golf course design or the golf industry is not immune to that either. You know, we, we've we had years where we were spending millions and millions and millions of dollars building golf courses because they were driving uh, home sales. And now we're back to, you know, spending, well, not quite so much, but we're still getting a, a lot out of it. You know, we're, we're learning how to, how to maximize those dollars. And I do believe that a decade or so down the road, we'll be back to, some people, some guys will be and girls will be building, you know, big grandiose multi-million dollar golf courses again. It just ebbs and flows and moves back and forth. Nathan, I'm trying to put this in terms that a superintendent who, you know, a lot of our listeners are superintendents would understand. What would be the difference between like a million and a half dollar renovation and a six million dollar renovation? What, what would what would be different about the, those two scales? I'm going to go back to what my old economics professor used to always answer almost every question with back when I was in Mississippi State, it depends. And it really does. It, it depends on so many factors. You know, every golf course is unique. Every golf course um, setting, the soils, the trees, the uh, whether or not you have wetlands and, and streams and things that you have to contend with, what the client wants. You know, what's the client looking for? Do, do, they, do, they, do they need irrigation upgrades, do they need new green surfaces, do they need all new green complexes? You know, there's so many different things that go into that. It, it's hard to just sit there and say, well, one and a half million will get you this and six million will get you that, when it could be, for example, let's talk about irrigation. You go out into the desert and your irrigation system is so much more complex and it's so much more expensive because you, you really can't, you literally cannot waste any water out there. You go to the southeast for example, in, say, South Louisiana, where they get six feet of rain every year, and your irrigation system is a little is a different animal. It doesn't need to be quite as complex because you have so much natural rain that you don't have to uh, be as concerned about you know wasting drops of water in, in need of areas. So it, it's so dependent upon from project to project and site to site, it's really hard to just kind of throw an answer on that question. Yeah, I certainly put you on the spot by asking you that. There's not a golf course architect who hasn't been asked that question. You know, everybody, everybody, um, a lot of people want to look at it like building a house. You know, and well, if you have X number of bathrooms and this and this and that, there ought to be this much a square foot. But it's 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 much more complex, and and uh, so no, don't don't worry about that. Do you see a lot more projects where the superintendent has more involvement now than you did in the start of the decade? Oh, I, I think the superintendent is probably the most important person on any golf project, especially a renovation project. You know, that's that's typically the first person I talk to um, when somebody comes to us about a, a renovation because that person is going to be not only on site every day during construction, kind of my eyes and ears, but also there when the construction's done. You know, so... It, it would be easy to go in and say, well, we're going to do this, 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 and that, and you just figure out how to take care of it. And I've heard horror stories of people who have been 
told that. But I always like to, you know, to partner up, for lack of a better term, with that superintendent because, A, he or she has a list of things that needs to be done on that golf course. In addition to whatever the green committee or the club the course owner or maybe it's a municipality, in addition to whatever they think needs to happen. So you've got to sit down and kind of mesh all that into one wish list, and then you have to figure out the best way to get all that done. So the superintendent, I would say the superintendent and the shaper are probably the two most important people on a golf course renovation. I know I'm kind of cutting myself short there, but I think if, if any golf course architect were honest, they would say that the, the superintendent and the, the shaper probably one and two, and you know maybe we slide in there as a close third when it's all said and done. You talk about uh, leaving the course behind for the people that have to ma- maintain it on a daily basis. A lot changed with the technology available to the superintendent and the golf course architect and the builder in the last 10 years. If you think about it, aggregate Bunker liners are a lot more prominent now than they were in 2010. There's a lot more GPS technology. There are wider mowers. The irrigation systems are are even smarter and have more computer controls. How has that affected golf course architecture, some of the these emerging technologies we've seen in the last 10 years? With advances in technology, you initially have you know an increase in cost. And then as it becomes more widespread, the cost comes down. It's, just like cars, computers, any electronic device. Um, if you happen to buy a new TV for Christmas, you can get a 55-inch TV for $300 now, and 10 years ago it would have cost you $4,000 for something that was not even quite not even quite that big. Golf courses are, again, not immune to, that, to those same economic forces. So as we have more technological advances, especially in irrigation and things like uh, bunker liners, new grass, new turf varieties that come out there and, and, and different equipment. You know, you see GPS-guided robot uh, mowers now. So as these things become more commonplace and more widely used, you'll see those costs start to reduce and, and then they'll start to pay off in the long run. For me, um, I have a, I've always hand-drawn all my, my drawings. And it's just because that, it's just the way I like to do it. I'm kind of old school in in that um, portion of our work, but I do have somebody that can take my hand drawings and, and turn them into AutoCAD, you know, so we can digitize everything. There are a lot of firms out there who probably don't hand draw anything now. You know, everything starts on a on a, on a computer screen or a or a tablet. So they're are varying degrees of technology and the way it impacts our business going forward. But I look, I look at most, I would say 99% of these technological advances are good things. Um, I'm sure there are some things that are going to prove to not be as beneficial as others, but you know, for the, for the most part, I would say that they're all good things. On a sadder note, in the last decade, golf course architecture lost some amazing people. If you think about it, Alice Dye, Bob Cup. Jay Morris, Jeff Cornish, Dick Nugent, Vicki Martz, David Gordon, John Harbottle, Jeff Harden, Don Herfoot, and Arnold Palmer all died in the last 10 years. What did some of those people mean to golf course architecture, and how tough is it to replace some of those names that, that I just mentioned? Oh, I, I think it's tough. Some of those people were household names, really, for, for anybody who played golf. Um, Bob Cup 
sponsor for membership in the ASGCA, and I still remember to this day when I met him back in the early 90s, I was working as an assistant golf pro at Old Waverly Golf Club in uh, West Point, Mississippi, and he came in to look at the golf course because they were, at the time, they were trying to get the uh, U.S. Women's Open, which they ended up getting for 99, I believe it was. And he came in and he was looking around the golf course and the superintendent, a guy named Bill Colorado, who was there at the time, knew that I wanted to design golf courses and knew I wanted to be a golf course architect. And so he introduced me to Bob. And after the you know the course tour and went up and said, Mr. Cup, this is Nathan Crace. He wants to be a golf course architect. And, and I just want to introduce him to you. And Bob looked at me and shook my hand and said, good luck. It's a tough business to get into. And then turned around and walked off. I just, I just remember sitting there thinking, what, what just happened? And, and I don't know if I, if I thought maybe he was going to just offer me a job on the spot. I mean, who knows? You know, I was still in college at the time. I was just, just finishing up college. I later on told him that that was kind of what I needed. That was what the spark that I needed. I needed somebody to kind of challenge me to get me to start pushing forward. If not for that encounter with Bob, I would not have been as motivated maybe to, to get into what I did. And so I shared that story with him years later that he ended up being my sort of de facto mentor and my lead sponsor into the SGCA. Vicki Martz, I knew very briefly. In fact, my first ASGCA meeting, she was one of the first people that, that came up to me and said, welcome, and, um, and talked to me for 20 minutes you know, when I first got there, and uh, you know, she died her that year, I believe. And so, you know, just a lot of great people, a lot of big shoes to fill. You know, so who, who knows who's going to step in and, and try to fill those shoes. So let's say you had a similar encounter that Bob Cup had with you a number of years ago. Let's say you have an encounter with a young person in 2020, and they said they want to be a golf course architect and follow – in the footsteps of some of the people we were just talking about, what would you tell somebody uh, that's younger that wants to do this as the new decade begins? I actually do have those conversations a couple of times a year, with, with whether by email, sometimes someone will call. And the main thing I tell each and every one of them, because I was fortunate in that growing up, my father was a general contractor, so I'd always been around construction all my life, around heavy construction. But I tell each and every one of them, you need to go to work for a golf course contractor for at least a summer. You need to understand from the ground up, the drainage, the irrigation, why things are done a certain way, how they're done. Go get a job for a golf course. And it doesn't have to be landscapes or Wadsworth. If you find a, a regional contractor somewhere close by and put a shovel in your hand and just start digging. But to understand the construction part first and then work your way up because, you know, golf course architects come from all walks of life. There are some that are landscape architects, you know, Pete Dye sold insurance. Um, you know, I, I graduated from Mississippi state with a professional golf management degree because I wanted to understand the business side of the industry before I started designing golf courses. So they're all different walks of life. But the first thing, the most important thing I tell these girls and guys that call me is get involved somehow in golf course construction and understand how things are built from the ground up. Nathan, I'm going to ask you to play uh, 
golf course architecture handicapper here. What do you think is going to happen in the 2020s in your business? Well, let's, let's bite it off in chunks. I think the next three to five years will be similar to the last, say, three years. Um, I think you'll, you'll see more and more projects will come online. Things will start to continue to get a little better, get a little better, get a little better. And I, I don't think anybody's going to be stepping on the accelerator and just blasting out of the gate, but I think we'll see a good, balanced growth, whether that be in new courses or renovation, primarily renovation. I think you'll see some of the courses that have closed in the last 10 years. I think you'll find that there's a buyer's market there that people will come in and start to buy up some of those properties and, and um, maybe renovate them. They may not be in the same form they were when they closed, but they may be some some degree of that. And, you know, as we kind of come out of that, what people call a market correction over the last, you know, early on in the last 10 years, I think we'll start to see that pendulum swing back to the other side. But I think it's going to be a lot more measured, a lot steadier growth than what we saw with you know, kind of the explosion in the 90s. Nathan, how about styles? I think in the 2010s we saw things get wider, corridors be opened up, huge greens. Do you see that this width trend is going to continue, or do you think maybe there'll be a, a shift? I'm going to say something that some people will say is controversial or stupid or whatever. I don't buy the wider is better um, for one reason. Well, I mean, for two reasons. Most people, you know, and I understand that the angles are, you know, there are more angles and, and that's more fun and that brings more people into the game. I get that. But if we continue to widen fairways, and I'm talking you know, double the width of fairways, you have to irrigate all that. You know, a lot of these golf courses, they have double row irrigation in the fairways, and, you know, some of them may have triple row, but they don't have irrigation way out in these other areas that you're talking about. So you have to irrigate it. Well, that's more money. you got to mow it at fairway height, and that's more money. you got to fertilize it, spray herbicides and insecticides. And you know, golfers are going to expect, especially on this side of the pond, a different level of conditioning. And now all of a sudden you've got these areas that used to be rough, and now they're fairway, and you can't just not maintain them. So it's the blanket statement of making golf courses wider and making fairways wider is more fun. That's where we need to go is not 100% accurate. What I prefer to do is like what we did at the refuge, which reopened next year, we widened the playing corridors. So we went in and took out invasive tree species, uh, dead trees, dying trees, trees that may have otherwise uh, created a risk because they were leaning over too far and could potentially fall, that type of thing. And then we underbrushed a lot of those areas. So even though the fairway widths remained relatively the same, now your playing corridor is much wider. You know, and, and if if you don't get to hit some shots out of the rough and you don't get to hit different types of shots when you go in and play a golf course, then it's not, to me, it's not as interesting. You know, everything's cut the same height all the way around. You know, it's, it's a novel idea. But just to say widening all the fairways will make golf 
better and more fun for everybody. I just I don't buy that as a blanket statement. You created a bit of a frenzy on Twitter when you mentioned that you might be involved in a futuristic concept or a concept that hasn't been tried much lately, uh, a zero bunker nine or zero bunker course. Do you see that happening more or is that just a complete anomaly that you might be involved in? Well, no, and, it, and it's, you know, it's weird because I just, I just have to mention it on Twitter. And as you said, it just kind of blew up. And it was funny because a lot of golf course superintendents on Twitter were like, oh, man, I would love to have that on my golf course because then that would free me up with so much more time to spend on greens and, and other things. And then the other end of the spectrum was, you know, a bunch of people telling me that that's not a new concept. There are plenty of golf courses with no bunkers. I didn't say it was a new concept. My point that I was making was, for more than 20 years, I've been looking for a client who would be willing to say, okay, no bunkers anywhere on this golf course, but to keep it from this being a big sea of green, we're going to have really cool shaping with lots of landforms around green complexes and the hollows and collection areas and slopes and banks and grass bunkers and, and different things so that you still have, you've got to have some you can't lose the aesthetic. You still have to have some contrast, and you know native areas and different things will help with that as well. But and there are plenty of golf courses out there that just filled in the bunkers because they didn't want to maintain them. I understand that too. But the idea behind this concept is from the drawing board all the way through construction. The plan is to not have any bunkers. So yeah, I am. I'm excited about the project. Do I think it's? I mean, I don't know if it's going to start a trend. I the, the goal is to enable them to have a fun golf course that's fast and firm, easier to maintain. The site is great. We'll be, and we're sitting here, you and I are talking a couple of days after Christmas, we'll be putting more information out on this next week, but the site is great. It's a rolling site, which is unusual for the part of the country that it's in, and it centers around a big huge lake that unfortunately doesn't really come into play right now on the existing nine. We're going to right now and if it moves beyond that into construction we'll build the new nine first and then come back and renovate the old nine and then they'll have 18 new holes i think you have an advantage compared to some of your colleagues on predicting what maybe the next generation of golfers want or how they think you've been a high school golf coach now for the last 10 years do you have conversations with your players about what they like to see in a golf course and how do their tastes compare to some of the people that are maybe paying the bills now? It's funny you mentioned that because this will be my 10th, this spring will be my 10th season as a volunteer golf coach. And it's a, it's a small school, but it's where my kids go to school. 10 years ago, the gentleman who was coaching the golf team uh, left the school over Christmas break. And when they went back to school, my daughter came home, and she said, Dad, you've got to do something. The uh, the golf coach quit, and they don't have a coach, and they don't know what they're going to do. And so I called the, the school and said, look, I'll help out for the first year. And it was funny because I had a meeting, and there were 30 kids there. And I was looking at some of these kids, and you, some of them were football players, and I think some, of these, some of them had never touched a golf club before. And I said, well... If you're here because you want to learn how to play golf, that's great. If you're here just because you want to get out of class to go to golf tournaments, then you don't need to be here. And about half of them got up and walked out. 
I grew up in Indiana, we would play, you know, I don't know, 20, 39 whole matches, but they were all after school. Well, it's done a little differently here. They don't take a whole day off of school to go play an 18-hole match once a week. So we once we figured out who was serious about it, one of the first things I told them was, we're going to go play better competition, longer schools, at nicer golf courses. And a lot of these kids had never played on nicer golf courses. They played little nine-hole country clubs, and they just didn't realize what was out there. And that, that kind of struck me that they had not been exposed to, you know, Old Waverly and Hattiesburg Country Club and Country Club of Jackson and those types of places. So I think that's a that's an important part when we talk about access for junior golfers, of being able to, to gain access to nicer nice facilities in order to grow the game. But by coaching the last 10 years, one thing that I have seen is, you know, there's a lot of bomb and gouge. You know, they don't know really how to hit shots. They just get up there and they pound the driver, go find it and hit another shot. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the short game. And you don't have to pull a sand wedge out just because you're near the green every time. You know, maybe you should put an eight iron and try to open their mind up and let them Think the way around the golf course a little bit, but I think that's one of the one of the biggest things that I've seen is the kids hit the ball so far. I mean, it's it's just it blows my mind how far these kids hit the golf ball these days. And and you know we we've been seeing that for years, and, and how you have to stretch out a golf course for tournament play. So I don't think that's going anywhere. You know, I think that's here to stay. So uh, if anything, that's one of the biggest challenges that we face but as far as this generation I think you've got to find a way to get their phones out of their hands and get a, a golf club in them you know so you, the golf courses have to be fun they've got to be you know, kind of like a social hub there's got to be a reason for them to want to go out there and you know get exercise and walk and have fun and meet other people and learn how to be social and, and play a game that they can literally play Nathan, do they like the same golf courses as a 50, 60, 70-year-old, or do they like a different style of golf course? Do you know what they like in golf course architecture? Do you have those conversations with them about the, the courses they play? Even though it's a smaller school, I have a pretty wide range of, of uh, skill and ability on the team. So I've got a couple of players who are really good, um, and we've got players on the other end of the spectrum who maybe can playing for less than a year. So the better players always appreciate good architecture. They always appreciate a good golf course that can challenge them and, and make them think their way around. The players on the other end of the spectrum appreciate a golf course maybe that doesn't have as much water and where you can't lose as many golf balls and as many bunkers and it's a little, little easier, a little more fun to play. And again, the challenge in doing that from an architecture standpoint, is really comes down to tees. You know, how, where you place tees for players with different abilities, and so they can maybe play around some of those hazards and, and get to the green without having, without being forced to get a shot over water, that type of thing. But uh, I think when you boil it down to the the very base element of it, golfers appreciate good design. Uh, and that's just a, that's a universal fact, I think, regardless of, of skill and ability. Another thing that really diversified over the last decade was content. 
you're involved in distributing and producing a lot of different forms of content, Nathan. You're, you're on social media. You've hosted a podcast. You're a podcast guest. You're a very good writer. You've done some video. How has that helped you in the last decade being able to distribute content in a number of ways? And what do you think the future of content is in the 2020s for somebody that works in the golf business? It helped me uh, remain sane because when when you're creative by nature and things slow down like they did 10 years ago in the business, you find yourself looking for other creative outlets. You know, so I wrote a book, you know, I wrote a, a thriller that was trying to get published. I you know, started looking at other avenues to be able to, to be creative and, and do things. I've started thinking about bringing back a cartoon that I used to do 20, 30 years ago. So I think that, you know, for if someone is creative, they're going to find different outlets. They're going to be interested in, in doing different things. And, and like with the podcast, when we, when we started the Lookouts podcast, I wanted to make sure that it was professionally done, sounded professional. You know, we invested some money in equipment and voiceover talent and things of that nature. And I quickly realized it's tough scheduling people that you want to schedule and then making time to fit them in and do it. You know, so there's a, a time element. And look no further than it's been January since we posted, a, and that was when we did the uh, slow plays hour with you guys. So it's been that long since we did the podcast. And that's on me. You know, I need to make time for those types of things. But the uh, going forward, I think the more content that is available in an easier-to-consume format is what's going to win. You know, things 10 years ago, you never thought that you would be sitting there looking on your phone and, and have all this content available. I mean, nobody even knew what a podcast was 12 years ago. You know, so things continue to evolve. There may be something that comes down the road two years from now that nobody's ever heard of. It could be the next big thing five years from now. So, and it's really hard to predict, but I think the easier it is for more people to have access to it, and people, you know, our, our attention spans are seem to be getting shorter and shorter, so, you know, a two-minute video is a lot easier to consume than sitting down and, and reading a book um, for a lot of people, so I think you'll see more and more of that. I'm glad you mentioned the slow plays are, because... There's no way we're going to get through this podcast without mentioning him or her. Do you think the slow plays are will be making an appearance in 2020? I think if the tour was serious about slow play, and I don't think they are, I, and, and I know people don't get mad about that, but I don't think they're serious about it. I think they put on a face about it and they say that, well, you know, we, we got to do something about it, but they're not serious about it. They're, what they're serious about doing is keeping the players happy, <clears throat> keeping the purses big, and that's fine. I mean, that's that's what they do. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't tell us what a what a uh, problem slow play is if you're not going to do something about it. And the slow plays are the time to impact index would be so easy to implement. And I, I'm, I'm serious. You could, a group of five 13-year-olds could sit down and write the code in about 27 hours, and they'd be ready to go because they had, they'd be, it would uh, 
shot link. And again, there's no there's no incentive like public shaming. But if there was monetary incentive built into all this, every tournament, not just, and it, it applies to everybody. So it's not just, um, you know, a few key offenders. It's when it applies to everybody, the equity factor goes way up. And I think everybody will find it a lot more acceptable. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, of course, they can go to slowplayzar.com. They can listen to the um, to the press conference that you guys uh, covered from Mexico last year, as well as the uh, the podcast of the of the news conference, and, and hopefully maybe the tool will step up and, and adopt that fully this year. It was definitely one of the last thing here, Nathan. Where else can people find your work if people want to learn more about what you're doing? What are some places they can go? On Twitter, as you mentioned at the top, my Twitter handle is Lipouts, L-I-P-O-U-T-S, and that goes back to a, a golf column that I wrote for eight years. Um, in fact, you go to lipouts.com if you're really bored and read some of the, all, all of the old columns, or eight years' worth, are, are in the uh, archives. And they're all each one page, so it's not not a big time commitment to read, but they're, they're entertaining. Um, but lipouts.com, uh, the company website is watermarkdolf.com. Um, you can go to nathancrace.com. There's uh, links there to different things. And, uh, you know, it's whether good, bad, or indifferent, I'm not too hard to find on the Internet. Well, Nathan, it was great to catch up with you. It's always a joy talking to you. Uh, this is our last podcast recording for the decade, so I couldn't think of a better guest to have on. So thanks a lot. Keep up the great work, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Glad you had a good Christmas. Hope you have a great new year. And everybody else out there, let's, you know, hopefully you have a good, prosperous new year, and we can 